Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 111. My soul was like, enough. It was like, it just enough. Enough shame, enough guilt, enough like taking on this like self-hatred. And I was just like, no. I was like, mom, no, no more. Tim Oyang is a recording artist, producer, and songwriter. His band, Tim Be Told, developed a strong grassroots following in 2007 after releasing a self-produced album recorded in his college apartment. This landed the band deep within the contemporary Christian music industry, but in 2017, Tim came out and started writing music about his experiences with love, disappointment, disbelief, faith, hope, and God. His new album, Love and Happiness, released just a few months ago. I'm so excited to have Tim on the show today. I was scrolling through my Facebook feed a couple months ago and and saw a friend of mine posting Tim's music saying, everyone needs to listen to this. And so I listened to it and was blown away. I I had never heard of him before. But when I posted about him on Instagram, it turns out all you all have been following him for a very long time. (laughs) He's had quite the career. and, And in this episode, we're talking about his coming out story, how things have shifted and changed for him since coming out, and this new album, Love and Happiness, which go listen to it. There is, I mean, the whole album is amazing. There's one song on it that, I mean, we talk about a a lot in this episode called Like This that, (laughs) and you'll hear me say this to Tim, like it it caught me off guard with how it made me not just cry, (laughs) but, but sob. Like it is a very touching song. So no announcements today, except for be sure to pick up your tickets to, to QCF's conference coming up here in January. You'll hear more about that in the middle of the episode. Just a heads up, there is some discussion of suicidal ideation in this episode. So take care of yourself. And let's just go ahead and dive in. Tim, hi, welcome. Hi, Matthias. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks, thanks for joining. Yeah, my pleasure. So we'll start with a question I ask everyone. How do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? So I am a, I'm a gay man. And as a Christian, I you know, grew up thinking that that was wrong and that that was intrinsically abominable to God. So yeah, grew up with a lot of cognitive dissonance, a lot of tension inside. But I think for me, if anything, my faith actually helped to solidify my identity uh, in the long run. As I started to get to know myself better, as I continued to explore my faith, I actually found more kind of assurance in who I was and who I was created to be. And for me, being gay kind of began as the bane of my existence. And it has actually become something that has become an incredible blessing and something that has been an effective avenue for me to communicate with people and to also have empathy for others. 
I would love to hear about some of that journey. Like, like you, you said, it kind of started off of being gay was like the bane of your existence. <laughs> I would, lo- I would love to hear about that. Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up in a fairly conservative household. Um, I'm also Asian American, and so there was cultural baggage as well. And so growing up, it wasn't something that was really talked about in my household. It was something whenever, you know, something would pop up on TV or the news, you could tell just by my parents' reaction or by the reaction of my peers that being gay or anything in that queer spectrum was considered gross or disgusting, something that God would not approve of. And I would kind of catch these things in church as well from the pulpit being told that if they were ever to talk about sin, the worst example that they would always come up with was homosexuality. Like that was the worst example of sin that they could they th- they could think of. So I knew pretty early on, probably I want to say even like 12, 12 years old. And even before that, I knew something was different. But I think 12 years old, 13 years old was when I started to gain a little bit of clarity as to why I was different, why I felt different. And then it really started to become clear to me in high school. And at the time, you know, I I tried to date girls and it just never felt right. And I kind of started to go down this path of praying to God to change me. So I remember even as young as 12, just kind of in my room, praying and crying and asking God to take this away. Because I thought that for some reason, this thing inside of me was not a part of me. And it was like something that was evil, satanic. And I had heard that in Sunday school too, right around the time as I was discovering this about myself, a Sunday school teacher told our class that he believed homosexuals were possessed by the devil and that Satan had a grip on their heart. Being that young, I think at 12, 13 years old, that kind of stuff really sinks in because those are kind of formative years where you're finding your identity, um, figuring out you know who you are. And that was so traumatic for me in, in a way. It became ingrained in who I was that for some reason, I was now in the grips of the devil for whatever reason, right? And, and I started going down this rabbit hole of maybe my parents did something wrong and so God is punishing my parents by making me gay. Just a lot of just spiritual pathologies started seeping into my brain and into my spirit. And I had this very strange relationship with God because in one sense, the God that I grew up with, the one that my mom taught me about was kind and loved me and wanted the best for me and was always going to be there for me. But then in this other kind of side of my brain, there was this belief that I was evil, somehow intrinsically evil, and that until I was straight, until I identified that way and didn't have these feelings anymore, I was always going to be beholden in some way to the devil. And that was a very scary feeling. And I carried that with me up until college. And my first year of college, I was so depressed and so suicidal that I i think it was like one of my last nights at university, I, I considered like killing myself. And it was that night when I was contemplating suicide, I ended up calling a friend of mine. She was a youth group counselor back in the day when I was in high school. And then she was also a licensed therapist. So I called her for some reason, that just seemed to be the right person to call. And 
I think she responded perfectly. I mean, even though, you know, she had grown up in the same faith tradition that I did, she didn't express any judgment when I told her. She just listened to me. And instead of talking about the sinfulness or the non-sinfulness of that issue, she just affirmed me and just said, you're loved, you matter. And I told her that I would considered killing myself. And then she said, hey, I don't want you to be alone tonight. Please call a friend, find somebody to stay with tonight so that you're not alone. Um, so she did everything right. So that was kind of a very pivotal moment for me because it was the first time that I had gotten the courage to share that with somebody. And then that summer, actually, I ended up reluctantly coming out to my parents. I was basically forced to come out to my parents. What happened was they were looking through my cell phone bill and they found that I was calling a specific number like over and over again. And they guessed correctly that it was a guy, a friend of mine that they had met before. And they started getting concerned because they were like, why is Tim calling this guy over and over again for like hours at a time? So my parents sat me down in the living room and this was pretty traumatic. Um, all of a sudden there was just a lot of yelling. They basically started accusing me of being gay. And they were like, are you gay? Like, are you, you know, it seems like you're calling this guy over and over again and we've met him before and he seems like he's gay. And so it was just really horrible. And in that moment, like just seeing the look on my dad and my mom's face, like this look of just utter fear, I felt this visceral need to protect them because my parents being Asian American immigrants and also conservative Christians, there was something in my mind that kept telling me, if I tell them the truth, this is going to break them. And it wasn't so much for myself to protect me, it was to protect them. So I just denied it flat out. I was like, no, I'm not gay. Don't worry about it. And then I kind of just like walked out of the room. But I knew after that moment, I was like, I can never tell them. Like, I can never tell them what's really going on. So a couple of days later, my mom comes into my room and she's kind of looks a little bit sad. And she asked me one more time, are you gay? And I said, no. And then she said, I read your journal. And I, it was such a violation of my privacy. And oftentimes in, in Asian American culture, this idea of children having boundaries between their parents, it's, it's just not a thing. So for them to read my journal, it was like, they didn't think it was that big of a deal. But in a way, I was relieved. I was relieved that I didn't have to be the one to tell her and that she kind of sought that on her own and found out the truth. And so we were sitting down and she said to me, we were just talking about it. And when I was just crying, I just was like, it was like so many emotions all at once. And I said to her, you know, mom, you told me a story one time of when you were pregnant with me, that you'd prayed to God, that you didn't want anybody special, that you didn't want anybody, you know, famous or whatever, like you just wanted a child that was normal and useful for your kingdom. And then I asked her, I was like, why is it that God didn't answer that prayer? Like, why is it that he gave you something that the almost the complete opposite of what you asked for? And my mom, in spite of her being incredibly conservative and all the cultural baggage she had, I think she said something that was quite profound and simple in the moment. She said, God did answer my prayer. You are normal because normal people need his grace. And it was kind of, I feel like it was my mom's way of saying, God loves you no matter what. And for me, that was monumental because 
even though to this day my, my parents still hold a conservative view, I think I, I count myself fortunate that I haven't experienced worse things because I've had many friends who were immediately kicked out of their homes or disowned by their parents. And my parents found a, a way to kind of hold their love for their child and their faith tradition in tension. And for me, I struggled still. You know, I, I mean, I think ideally you would want parents that were affirming, right? But you, you kind of take what you can get. And the next couple of years, um, I really was wrestling with this idea of, can I be who I am as a gay person and still be a Christian? So while I was going through that journey, I, I decided to stay celibate. Um, and it wasn't so much that I felt that I had moral qualms about it. I, I did have a couple, but it was more so I was still entrenched in traditional church culture. I, I also after college, I became a musician and I was in the Christian music industry. So in a way, I had to strengthen the closet doors, so to speak. I had to kind of present myself in a way that was heteronormative in order to move freely through this world. And I, for years, I did this. And then in 20, I think 2017, 2017, after I released my album, I came out publicly. And that was a really difficult decision, but it was also something that I'd been thinking about for a while. And it wasn't just for me, because at that point, I was out to most of my family, to my close friends. I had a really good community surrounding me. So for me coming out, it was more I was thinking about my 12-year-old self. I was thinking about how many kids are like that out there thinking that God hates them. And maybe if I come out, as a Christian musician, right? That it would be sort of a comfort in a way, almost like a, a beacon to signal to people that they're not alone. So I came out publicly. There was one article I did with Inheritance Magazine, and then there was a um, blog post that I wrote myself. And the blowback on that was incredibly swift. I expected there to be consequences for my career but I didn't expect it in my personal life. And this is where it kind of took a turn for the worst. The church that I was serving at, I was serving as a worship leader. I was one of the main worship leaders. The church, the pastor, they all knew and they were fine with it. And however, the denomination that our church was under, when they caught wind that I had come out publicly, a lot of the sister churches were kind of asking the denomination, like, how do we feel about this? Like, this guy is a public figure. And a lot of the children, you know, the high school kids in our churches, they know who he is, you know, they follow his music. So how do we, how do we want to address this, right? I think the denomination in their fear just told the pastor, told my pastor, like, you have to remove him from leadership. And not only that, I was not only removed from leadership in terms of worship, they told me that I couldn't serve in any type of public capacity. So I couldn't be seen or heard. So if I wanted to serve, it had to be behind the scenes. So in a way, they were perfectly fine. I was actually helping to renovate the children's room at the time. And they were, they were like, oh, he can continue doing that, <laughs> you know, but he just can't serve in any visible capacity. And for me, it was so weird and, and, and kind of humiliating because the weekend that it happened, I had actually brought two other gay friends of mine to that church. And I had told them, hey, this church is actually, they have a lot of diverse opinions about things, but they're a safe place, you know, for people who are queer. I brought them that weekend to that church, and that was the weekend that I was removed from the worship team. And it was just humiliating because I had assured these people, these friends of mine, that this was a safe place, and they saw this happen to me. 
And my pastor, who is an amazing man, he tried to defend me to the denomination. He kept telling them like, look, you know, Tim has done nothing wrong. He's been celibate for, you know, 30 some odd years of his life. He's done nothing to violate any of the church policies. All he's done is just share that he's gay. And I think for them, they saw that as some kind of compromise of theology. And so they fired him eventually. And our church, our community was so upset about this because this, this pastor had been in that church, I think, over 10 years. And then so they brought in a new pastor and he just ended up not being a great person. He had actually had problems at his previous church. There were even allegations of physical abuse. And so they brought this guy in. And it was weird because the church that I was attending, it was actually a Japanese American church that had actually started post-internment after World War II. So a lot of the people that um, attended that church, a lot of the older, the elderly people, you know, they were in their 90s. A lot of them had survived internment. So this was kind of not just a spiritual refuge for them, but also like a like kind of like a cultural refuge for them as well. So this pastor comes in and he is basically trying to erase any remnants of Japanese culture from the church because he wanted it to be more quote unquote diverse. And his definition of diversity was, in his own words, was more Black people and more Latino people. And so in trying to create that diversity, he started erasing kind of the cultural roots of that church. And so eventually, there was just so much tension that was happening between him and the congregation. Eventually, he got the denomination to shut down the entire church. So the church that had kind of existed for 100 years was just gone. Like, it was just obliterated from the face of the planet. And I can't tell you how devastated I was because I felt like my coming out had triggered this series of events and had basically ruined so many people's lives, right? And, you know, I think growing up as a, as a gay man in church, you already wrestle with this idea of feeling guilty all the time. And this was a doozy for me. I, I just felt incredibly incredibly lost, like just felt like the weight of the world on my shoulders. And I felt like I had to make it right. And there was nothing I could do. I could, I felt completely helpless. And so after that whole thing, I just disappeared from doing music for a while. I didn't know how to live a public life anymore. I didn't know what that looked like because for so long, I had been divorced from my real self. And the thing that I presented was so curated and so meticulously planned out And now I didn't know how to do that anymore. Everything was out there. And so I took a break and I ended up just spending that time finding out who I was and also taking time to write music that I really wanted to write about. You know, for being in the, in that Christian music world for so long, I felt like I was always censoring myself. I was always alluding to things, but never talking about them explicitly and this new album that I started writing, I started talking about everything, like the real stuff, what it felt like to fall in love with a guy and have him not love me back, what it felt like to come out to my parents, the loneliness that I felt all the time. And I didn't sanitize it, right? I, I think a lot of Christian music is, you know, you can talk about conflict and tension, but you always have to resolve it somehow with some kind of like, you know, and Jesus is Lord and so everything will be okay. And I think fundamentally, I believe that as a Christian, you know, but it ignores all of the nuances and the struggle that comes along with that. And when I finally released this album, it did something that I think the music that I was writing in the past was unable to do. And that was to 
really help people unlock the pain that they were holding inside. And, you know, I think you probably understand this as, as kind of like a mental health professional. Like there's something so amazing when you see somebody break through their pain or when they're able to confront their pain and their sadness. I remember right before I released the album, I did this album listening party in the Bay Area. Around 200 people showed up and I purposely held it at a church because for me, I wanted to almost reclaim my spiritual heritage. I didn't want to reject the idea of God and Christianity. I wanted to reclaim it as my own. And so 200 people showed up. I kind of played through the album with them and talked around about my stories. And I can't even describe to you like just how amazing it was because there probably wasn't a dry eye in that room. People were just weeping. Um, not just queer people, like straight people were crying, like pastors, a, a bunch of pastors from the Bay Area had come to see what my newest album was about. And it was really quite incredible to see afterwards that all of these people were just talking to each other, like these worlds were colliding, like cause, because I'd been part of that Christian world for so long. But then I was also now in this kind of queer world as well. These two worlds were were coming together and converging and people were actually having conversations at this album listening party. And people came up to me, a, a couple of queer Christians came up to me and they were like, I saw people here that I haven't seen in forever, like people that I used to go to church with. And I got to talk to them and it was just like am- amazing. And so what I saw happening with this particular album was I felt like it was opening up conversations. And that was just really really exciting for me. And I've been getting messages from people all around the world just saying like, this album has helped them cope with a lot of the pain that they've been feeling, a lot of the loneliness, a lot of the conflict they've been feeling of having to choose between their faith or their sexuality or their identity. And it's been really incredible because I I thought that after coming out in 2017, my career as a musician, as a, you know, as I knew it was over, I just thought this is never going to happen again. And I even started a new business. I, I became an interior designer and I still do it, but I just was thinking like, I'm, I'm just going to leave this all behind. But there was, I think, something within me that wouldn't allow that to happen. And it pushed me to kind of put this album out. And, and I'm so grateful that I did because it really has been something very significant and very monumental in my life. Y'all, I'm so excited to be going to Q Christian Fellowship's first ever virtual conference happening January 7th through 10th in 2021. Listen to this keynote lineup. Father Richard Rohr, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, who's been on Queerology many times, Dr. Emily Towns, and Reverend Empo Tutu Van Furt. That's Desmond Tutu's daughter. You'll have the opportunity to hear from and connect with LGBTQ plus Christians and allies from all over the world. QCF Conference is an annual gathering where hundreds of LGBTQ plus Christians and allies gather for worship, fellowship, workshops, affinity gatherings, and to experience the fullness of God's love and affirmation through each other. I'll be recording a live episode of Queerology. Kevin Garcia and I are hosting an after-hours game night that's gonna be wild. (laughs) And we're also doing a workshop together about overcoming shame and bad theology. It's more than just a conference. QCF is catalyzing a movement. Virtual all-access registration is just $65, making this the most accessible conference ever. To find out more, visit qcfconf.org and sign up today. That's qcfconf.org. Can't wait to see you there. What a journey. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I, in this album, like that's how I heard about you. I, a friend on Facebook shared it, and I started listening. And like I, I got to the song like this, which is you know a few songs into the album, and just was kind of listening passively. And then all of a sudden, that song started playing, and like it caught me so unexpectedly, just like the tears. Oh, <laughs> I just was not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> awesome <laughs> and i just started just crying because i mean it's such a beautiful song but but you, you mentioned this thing about in some ways it, it's unlocked or, or tapped into pain and, and i feel like that's such beautiful language for it because that's what happened for me like i mean these are things that i've processed many times <laughs> and it, it opened up another layer of, of kind of grief of, of what it's like to come out to your parents and not have them respond the way you necessarily want them to, or falling in love with someone and not having them love you back, and and the yearning that that is a part of that. Like, I mean, the whole album is amazing, but that song like this is just so good. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about that song. Yeah, I started writing that song shortly after the incident happened with my church and the denomination. I think what I went through, it was so incredibly painful and it really brought everything to the surface. All of the insecurities I had, all of the struggles with my faith, it everything kind of culminated to this point where I was just like, I need to get all of these feelings out and put them into some kind of musical articulation that makes sense to me. And so the only way for me to really do that was for me to go back into my past and really explore that and really confront the painful things that happen because I think I think trauma builds upon trauma. I think a lot of us, we have this kind of initial thing that happens, right? And then every subsequent painful thing that happens compounds that memory and makes it worse, you know, and it becomes this kind of monster eventually, right? That almost becomes uncontrollable and it starts, yeah, it just starts infiltrating every part of our life. So for me, I was like, I need to get back to the source of all of this. And so that song, I naturally it just it just kind of came in three parts i think that first part was kind of more talking about the theology that i grew up with you know so that, that first line some call it blasphemy to disagree with what they say right so confronting first kind of the traditions and the theology and the doctrines that i was taught when i was younger and questioning this idea of why is it that i believed everything that i was told you know what in me felt like that th this was right what within me determines what's right or wrong you know is it what someone tells me from a pulpit or is it something else you know and so for me it was kind of that that first verse was an exploration of that of this idea of why is my theology this way and then the second part was kind of confronting the cultural and also the familial baggage that I had. And the best way I knew how to do that was to just describe that moment when my parents found out that I was gay and how sad it was and how painful it was to see the disappointment, to see the fear. And my mom doesn't cry a lot, but to see her cry was heartbreaking. I've always thought that my dad was fearless, that he wasn't scared of anything. And to see how terrified he was of something that he knew nothing of was so destabilizing for me. And so kind of delving into that, even though it had no resolution, it was incredibly therapeutic. And then finally, talking about falling in love with somebody. In this case, I was writing about falling in love with a straight guy. Um, I think that's something that 
a lot of people don't understand like the complexity of that because as a gay man, right? Like you obviously are going to have male and female friends, right? But having male friends, there's an incredible amount of like tension and complexity that goes along with that. And so for me, I was describing that, that feeling that I had growing up because I didn't know any gay people. All my, all my guy friends were straight. So inevitably I fell in love with one of them and I was young too, right? I was, I was in, I was in high school the first time I fell in love with somebody and you didn't, feel the same way. And it's like the heartbreak of kind of your first love in high school compounded with the fact that you're also wrestling with like sexual identity and orientation. And that was the other thing too, was that I didn't want it to just be like, oh, I had a crush on somebody and he didn't love me back. I wanted to describe like what it felt like to feel that in the context of a really close friendship, someone that really did love me and cared about me and was, I was incredibly close to, but didn't have those same romantic feelings and how how much that broke me because it felt like I had I had also fractured that friendship as well. And so I kind I think dealing with all of those kind of nuanced and complex emotions through this song it really just came out it flowed out on its own. You know, I think for me as a songwriter there are things sometimes that there are songs sometimes where you know I really have to work hard to get to a place where I feel like the song is good. This one, it just it really kind of wrote itself, even just the way that the wor- words were rhyming. <laughs> I just was like, I, I don't think it was something that I was very cognizant of. It was almost like there had been all of these like spiritual and mental and emotional things all building up inside and they just wanted to come out for years, right? And it finally came out in this, in this one song. It's kind of like, I call it like the crown jewel of the album, just because it's, it's one of the first songs where I, where I really felt like I was, completely 100% honest, like about everything about who I was. I also didn't feel like I did it in a way that was contrived or forced or like overly biographical, um, which some, like, you know, when you're like crossing into like country music, like it, it was just like, I'm sharing the visceral pain and emotions that I've like felt throughout the years. Yeah. And it- <laughs> And it invites people in, or at least it, it certainly invited me in. Because I mean, that ex- that experience of like falling in love with a best friend, <laughs> or falling in love with a straight guy. Like, I don't know that everyone has that experience, but I feel like it's at least a common experience. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very common. Yeah, and and those complexities, like those, are heartbreaks that that don't get spoken to a whole lot. It, that that sense of like we almost have to process that within ourselves because it's hard to process it with anyone else because it's just such a different kind of heartbreak. So beautiful. So you mentioned kind of at the start of this conversation, and you mentioned it again a few minutes ago, of how, how your identity kind of started to solidify through faith as you kind of came out and grew more confident in yourself. And, and you were talking about reclaiming your spiritual heritage. I, I would love to hear a little bit about like where you are now. I mean, knowing that that's always evolving, but what has that process been like to kind of work with your faith? I think I can kind of pinpoint it to a particular season in my life. It was when my godson was born. And so I moved to California about eight years ago. And I moved in with a couple and I didn't even really know them that well, but we had gotten to know each other over, uh, over the course of a year. And they were like, Hey, if you ever want to move to California, come live with us. So I ended up moving up in with them. And the day that I was moving, they told me that they were pregnant and they were like, Hey, do you want to still move in with us? Even though we're going to about to have a baby, 
And I was like, I already ended my lease. I have already packed the van. I'm like ready to go. So I ended up moving in with them. And then a couple months later, my godson was born. And I actually ended up taking care of him just because maternity leave is really short for a lot of people. And so mom had to go back to work and the dad also had to go back to work. And so I was basically watching this little baby by myself as like a 26, 27 year old who had never been married. Like I didn't, I wasn't even sure what I was doing, um, <laughs> but there was something in this kind of, I felt like I was adopting a baby in a way, you know, and really grew to love this, this little kid. And it's weird. It's like, I felt like he almost helped me rediscover my childhood self. Like I was able to see my childhood self through the lens of my adult self because I was like taking care of this little kid. And the more I grew to love him and the more he became kind of entrenched in, in, in my soul and my spirit, I really started thinking about like, what is it that I want for this kid? You know, like I was thinking to myself, like, I want him to, I want him to know God, but I want him to know like the right God. Like I want him to know a God that, that will love him no matter what, a God that is not opposed to him being happy. And I, I remember this distinctly. I remember my mom, one day she called me and she was basically giving me a lecture about how like as a public figure, as like a Christian, this was actually even before I came out of the closet publicly. She was just like, you know, as a public figure, as a Christian, like you really need to be careful about like what you say publicly. Like you need to really honor God with everything that you say. And she was just like, you know, because God is not going to deal like lightly with you or whatever. And I just like, I lost it. And not in like an angry way, way. It was almost like my soul was like enough. It was like, it just enough, enough shame, enough guilt, enough like taking on this like self-hatred. And I was just like, no, I was like, mom, no, no more. And I just started weeping on the phone. I was just like, Ever since Joseph was born, Joseph's my godson. I was like, ever since Joseph was born, I feel like God has been changing me and showing me something completely different than what I what I thought about myself. And I was just like, when I look at Joseph, all I can see is God's love for him. And I was just like, I can't see anything else. I can't see condemnation. I can't see me wanting to, you know, inflict guilt and blame on him. I want him to grow up knowing that he is loved and that he can be confident and he can be proud of who he is. And I was like, mom, there's nothing you can say to undo that. Like I've fundamentally changed. And so being able to see my godson through that lens of like, I just want you to know that you are loved and I want you to be happy. I want you to be a good person, obviously, but that has to come from a place of knowing that you are loved, not from a place of guilt. And there's a very big difference, even though the behaviors might look the same. Someone who is acting, who's doing good out of a place of love and, and peace and joy, it's very different from someone who's doing those things because they feel guilty, because they feel like they're obligated to. And so when I started realizing this about how just because you're doing good doesn't mean that you are good, it started to inform my faith a little bit more and made me realize that Christianity, the root of it is this idea of not religious behavior modification, it's transformation of the spirit, right? So it's not something that you can quantify by how many good works that you do. That's not Christianity. Christianity is essentially the spirit of God dwells within you and changes you from the inside out. It's not you laying a sacrifice or you laying out a table before the gods. It is God himself laying a table out and inviting you to partake in that feast, right? It's a completely different thing, right? 
And so when I started realizing that this idea of like God is inviting me, right, that God has put me in this particular time and place, made me exactly the way I am so that if I reach out for him, he'll reach back. And that I have been put on this earth to communicate that, to share that good news. And I think those of us who grew up in evangelical culture, right, like we were taught, like, go preach the gospel, go do this and that, right? Um, And we're told to tell people to recite a script, right? Like, oh, I believe that I'm a sinner, and then Jesus died for my sins, and then rose on the third day, and I believe that he rose on the third day, and and now, you know, I'm a Christian, right? And it's almost like you're, you're reciting like an incantation or a spell, right? And then all of a sudden, you're magically a Christian. And I'm like, that should not be how that works. I was like, there should be something metaphysical, something mystical involved in all of that too, right? Where there's an actual encounter with the divine, right? Something outside of what we can quantify, right? But I think what's so interesting is that we've made Christianity and, and spiritual issues so academic, right? It's like, you have to get this perfect doctrine, right? You have to recite this certain theology perfectly. And if you don't, then you're a heretic or you're not truly saved or something. And I'm just like, is that the litmus test for what a true believer is? And and what I what I look for now in myself and in others is what is the fruit of my belief system? And what I've seen for myself is that as my belief system has transformed, my very essence has transformed. Like I feel love for people that I normally wouldn't feel love for. I am so much more at peace with myself. I feel joy. Like I actually feel happy most of the time, even if there's no reason to. And it's because I shifted my belief system into believing that I was created the way that I am for a reason. And it's a good reason. And I've seen my journey as a gay man has given me insight. I see the world differently than a lot of people. Um, I see God differently. And it's that diversity of insight that I think, you know, the church needs, right? Like to have just one perspective in a spiritual community, I don't think is healthy. I think you need people who see everything, see things from different angles. And what I found is that even beyond just my understanding of how queer people fit into the Christian paradigm, I've had straight people call me, just people that I haven't talked to, like people from my old church have called me and said like, hey, I'm really struggling with my faith right now. You seem like you're somebody who has really wrestled with a lot of things and and I just want to hear your insight. And so they're not even just looking at me as like, oh, he's like the gay Christian guru, right? That knows everything about queer issues. But they're actually seeing me as somebody who has encountered God that has a relationship with God and that's winsome to them, right? Like they're, they're drawn to that, you know, and they're like, what is he experiencing? What does he know about God that I'm missing? Right? Because why am I struggling? You know, because I've, I've done all the right things. Like I've recited all the right theologies and doctrines and yet I feel hollow inside. And yet this is somebody who's maybe on the fringes of the Christian world now, but yet he seems to be incredibly joyful and, and settled in himself. And so I think, we will often discount the fact that there's something beyond just words and rhetoric. And we have to actually encounter the spiritual realm with our spirit. And that's really hard to kind of explain to people, right? Until they've actually experienced it themselves. And really all I do is just, I, I, I listen to people's stories and, and I just try to be myself as much as possible to be as true to who God created me to be. And I find that in doing so, people are drawn to God. It's kind of remarkable. I'm not really doing much except kind of fulfilling 
all the potential and all of the things that God intended for me. How different from that little boy who was terrified of being possessed (laughs) (laughs) to now. Yeah. Like, I love it. How can people find your work? I'm pretty much everywhere. Uh, I'm on Spotify, iTunes, and if they want to support me like directly, they can buy my music off of Bandcamp. But um, you can also follow me on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's all Tim Be Told. And that's my artist name, Tim Be Told, like truth be told, Tim Be Told. And I hope that people will listen to the album. Um, I am really proud of it. It might not be everyone's cup of tea, but I hope that people will give it a chance and, and take a listen. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, it's... It's so good. I've, I've been listening to it a lot. So, Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Tim. This has been wonderful. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed being here. You can stream Tim's music wherever you listen to music by searching Tim Be Told. He's also across social media at Tim Be Told. And if you want to support him directly, which I would highly encourage you doing, head over to his band camp to buy his music. The link for that is in the show notes. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible because of its active listeners. To find out how you can become an active listener and keep Queerology on the air, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. Until next time, y'all. Bye! credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.